Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B -b bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. This is bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Welcome back to the War on Drugs on the Bullshit Filter, episode 317. My name is Cameron Riley. How are you, Ray? Peachy, peachy keen. How are you? I'm um, great. Thanks, buddy. On our last episode, we uh, talked about the death of Arnold Rothstein, the inventor of the modern drug gang. We talked about how the fallout from that. A lot of politicians, a lot of cops, even some judges went down in New York because <laughs> wow. they were all on his payroll. Which uh, and his fall, his fall, his death led to a realization that that he was involved in the drug business because the general public didn't even know that. Um, I didn't mention, but uh, there was a, a woman who, uh, called I think June Boyd who was uh, arrested on a train with a couple of million dollars worth of drugs uh, in a suitcase, oh, a couple of million dollars of 1928 money worth of drugs. There was another wow. $7 million found at, a, at, a, at her apartment. Um, so there, there was a lot of fallout, including um, the, the, the narcotics division Lefty Nut, which led to Harry Anslinger setting up the FBN. We talked about how... Um, FBN and the FBI didn't like each other, and uh, we're, we're getting up to the 50s and the 60s. You wanted to talk a little bit about the 50s before I get into the 60s, Ray. Yeah, so I was reading reading some stuff over, and when you mentioned the 1960s to somebody, you know, the first thing they probably think about is the counterculture, the drugs, and that kind of stuff. But the truth is, a lot of that started in the 1950s with the Beat Generation, and that was a movement of young people um, who were trying, who were rejecting conventional society, and they were into things like modern jazz, free sexuality, re recreational drugs, Jack Kerouac's writing. Allen Ginsberg, that kind of thing. And what they were doing during the 50s was they were using marijuana, but they were also getting into heroin. And also, LSD had been created or invented, uh, put together in the 1940s. And so during the 1950s, they were uh, doing experiments with that. It was pretty much just intellectual interest. They just they were just being self indulgent. This was after the war, and obviously the um, uh, the American economy was ripping and roaring. Everybody's doing pretty well. They got good paying jobs, um, and and so some of these things that you hear today that drugs can enhance your creativity, can enhance your enhance your insight and productivity comes from from this decade. Now, the interesting thing is that in the 1950s, Harry Anslinger stopped the availability of pot for scientific studies. So when he starts coming out with all these statistics afterwards about how marijuana is bad, it's a gateway drug, uh, people, people, are, people who actually knew something about this were confused. They're like, well, if you don't allow studies, how can you have all these statistics at your fingertips? And again, like you said on the last episode, um, everybody's so focused on the communist using marijuana that... Anslinger got Truman to sign the Briggs Act, which increased the penalties for um, for marijuana possession. And I just found this out today when I was going through it the last moment. In 1958, 
following up some other states, Virginia, my state, passed extremely harsh new laws. Marijuana possession would get you a minimum of 20 years, no parole. Now, at the time, you could get 15 years for murder and 10 years for rape, but possession of marijuana, 20 20 years. And so um, heroin is starting to come into the urban areas, it's starting getting to the jazz music scene. Um, and did you, did you ever run across the, uh, the Golden Triangle, the spread of communism uh, that leads, excuse me, did you read about the spread of communism that leads the U.S. government to make alliances with drug lords in the Golden Triangle? You know, that, that Air yes. America movie? That was just fascinating. So, again, America is so desperate to fight communism that they're, they're making alliances with these drug lords, giving them um, arms and ammunition, and so they can use their planes to, to do things that they – Illegal things, the U.S. government and the CIA together are running raids using civilian planes that are belonging or that are working with the drug lords. And so, but because the government worked with them, so much more heroin came into this country that the rates of addicts during the 1950s went up. So again, it was just another of example of the CIA not focused on the means, just focus on the ends, selling their soul and making it possible for even more heroin, which another part of the government is fighting, to flow into this country and make addicts out of tens of thousands of people. I think at some point by the end of the 1950s, it was somewhere around 700,000 more addicts because of things like Air America. All right. I think Air America just, was just a bit a, later, dude, though. Well, it, just um, 1950 to 1976 is what I have. Yeah. 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 But, but just the point, uh, it was an incredible a decade and – you know, the, the people are just rebelling from all the stuff they, their fathers thought. And it's interesting because you take these people who suddenly have very good jobs and you compare them to their parents who lived during the, the Great Depression. I mean, it's just night and day between these people. And that's part of the reason that they were trying to flout uh, uh, conventionalism because they wanted to, to break away from all that and see life differently. And so they were, some of them were trying drugs to have a very different life. Yeah, I think the story, as I recall it with Air America, is it was around, as you say, from 1950, but um, the allegations that it got involved in drug trafficking sort of happens in the 60s. Mm, Uh, But uh, there's not a lot of evidence for that. There's several unproven sources claim they were flying opium, but um, I I don't know that's ever really been backed up by sufficient evidence, but, you know, because... I'm sure the CIA is going to do a good job of getting rid of that too, so it's hard to know. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so in the 1960s, um, as drugs became symbols of the counterculture, youthful rebellion, political dissent, as you say, the government halted scientific research to evaluate medical safety and efficacy of drugs. So a lot of this stuff gets shut down in the 50s and 60s and, and, and it made it impossible for us to have a, an informed scientific discussion about the, the pros and cons of using drugs. Mm-hmm. And the baby boomers born after World War II had a different set of priorities. 
the baby boomers uh, obviously where the, the counterculture comes from. We think of baby boomers today as your, your uh, uh, elderly, white, selfish motherfuckers that destroyed the environment and have ruined the world for the rest of us. And that's true. But in the 60s, they were the cult, the 50s and 60s, they were the, the counterculture. And I want to, uh, you, you gave us a good sort of uh, Reader's Digest coverage there. I want to get down into understanding the beatniks and the hippies and the counterculture a little bit more over the course of the next couple of episodes because I think um, it's important to understand uh, uh, how that played a role in the drug war. Okay. Um, now, the, the counterculture obviously made marijuana fashionable on college campuses, the hippies wanted to expand their minds, have religious experiences using hallucinogens, LSD and, and peyote. Uh, mescaline comes from peyote, these sorts of things. We had a lot of soldiers returning from Vietnam um, with marijuana and heroin habits. In, in, in short, the, the demand for drugs in America skyrocketed in the 1960s. It had actually been a relatively small thing before then, relatively niche. Mm. But in the 60s, drugs all of a sudden became hip. They became popular. Saying hip became hip. Um, (laughs) Which is where the word hippies come from. (laughs) And the boomers, as you said before, they they grew up, the war was over. They had Vietnam. They had Korea and Vietnam going on. Um, But they were the most educated generation to date, they were there was there was money there was wealth America was the um, only economy really to survive in a big way out of World War Two as we've talked about mm-hmm. in our Cold War series a lot, and they also had this desire to make the world a better place. The baby boomers they had a mm. quest for new experiences. They had this new sense of invincibility. They wanted to get things done. They were in a hurry. A lot of the a lot of the same attributes that we think that millennials have these days, you know, they've they've got it better than any previous generation. They've not known really a war. They they um, have a have a, a sense of invincibility. That was true of the baby boomers as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, we see they're out there fighting for moral causes. Some of them were anyway. They're fighting for civil rights. They're fighting for women's rights. They're fighting for the environment. They're protesting the Vietnam War. And they're using marijuana to a lesser degree, LSD. And they're bringing drugs from the fringes of society into the mainstream. Um. On May 13th, 1957, Life magazine published an article that talked about using psilocybin mushrooms in religious rites in Mexico, the indigenous Mazatec people of Mexico. And there was a, a clinical psychologist at Harvard, a guy called Timothy Leary, who read that and he went, oh, that, that sounds cool. I'm interested in uh, you know right. religious experiences. Check I think uh, I'll go to Mexico and check that out, which he did. <laughs> Um, he went, he did the whole uh, psilocybin and peyote thing in Mexico, blew his mind, went back to Harvard and started doing scientific experiments on the therapeutic potential of LSD and psilocybin. Now, 
poet you mentioned mm. before, Allen Ginsberg, one of the beat poets, and I'll talk about beat a little bit more in a minute. He heard about Leary's project and he went to Harvard and asked to join the experiments. <laughs> and Leary had a colleague, a guy called Richard Alpert at the time. He later uh, became known as the Guru Ram Das after he went to India. They were working on these experiments together. They end up getting fired from Harvard in <laughs> 1963. Supposedly because their scientific experiments weren't really scientific, they were giving students drugs outside of the experiments at their homes, probably allegations of them banging their students. Um, But mostly, I think, when you read between the lines, because, oh, my God, drugs um, was what was going on here. Now, after they got kicked out of Harvard, they both uh, continued to publicly promote the use of psychedelic drugs, but for therapeutic purposes. It was about having religious experiences, having insights. In fact, I've got this clip from Leary that I want to play. This is from a speech he gave in 1967. Three things I have to say to you. First of all, when your life is over, you look back and you will remember that the only thing that had any point or meaning was your religious experience. By the religious experience, I mean the immediate, direct, ecstatic confrontation with the timeless energies which exist within you. And any of your actions which do not center on the religious experience, any of your actions which aren't leading you to get high, to center, are robot, peripheral, and eccentric. The religious search is the process of turning on. You have to turn on. Now, after you've turned on, what do you do? You have to express it. You have to live it out. When you've contacted the divine process within, you'll discover to your astonishment that God is not, as you may have been told, a man who lived in the past and died and whose word is now uh, preserved by such um, religious institutions as the Reader's Digest (laughs) or the phenomena of Christmas cards nor the philosophy of Ronald Reagan. The divine process if it's anything, if it can be described, and of course, man describes God at his own risk, but if it is to be described, it's closer to music. The divine process is a rhythm. It's a beat, which continually manifesting itself in sequences over and over again, repetition. The same thing that's dancing in the stars, the same thing that's dancing inside the cells of your body, the same thing that's dancing inside the nucleus of the atom, the same problems of north, south, east, west, black, dark, invader, intrusion, escalation, water purification that we worry about at the political level. It's happening within every cell in your body. Indeed, every cell in your body is uh, an organization of communication, defense, transportation, corruption, cleanliness, uh, much more complicated than the city of New York. God's rhythm is expressed at every level of energy, and it's always sequence. It's always cycle. It's always doubling back on itself. 
when you've turned on, you tune in on this beat, and then you have to start dancing. And the rest of your life becomes uh, in tune with the rhythm that you're discovering within. After you turn on, you tune in. And you can't turn on and tune in unless you systematically, gently, aesthetically begin to detach yourself from the immediate tribal game, which is always anthill. And this process of detaching yourself, tuning in, we call drop out. You have to drop out. So does that say, that sound familiar? Yeah. Tune in, no, tune, turn what it on, it, tune what in, What did it remind you out. of? Yeah. But what did it remind you of, what he was talking about? Anything? Well, um, and you know, I don't like to stroke your ego, but tune in, you know, t- turn on, excuse me, get in touch with yourself. Uh, tune in, externalize what you find once you examine yourself and drop out, focus on the essential. I don't know. I was thinking about the three illusions, but that's probably not what you mean. No, that's exactly what I mean. I mean, oh, okay. he was he, he was basically uh, selling a philosophy. And what these guys had discovered, and a lot of other people have, have mentioned this since then, is that by using drugs like LSD, psilocybin, um, there's even studies going on today, and now that they've made uh, uh, scientific research on LSD possible again in the last few years, that it does have this effect on people. There's plenty of evidence to show that people that use LSD have, quote-unquote, a spiritual experience, which leads them to the realisation that there is just the universe and uh, that we are that, which is what I talk about in the Three Illusions book and you and I did on our Three Illusions podcast and stuff. Um, I I was going to ask you about that. You you partially answered my question. I I guess... And and I have I have absolutely no idea when it comes to these experiments or these studies. Obviously, when I was high, the only thing that happened to me was I lost short term memory and I laughed for three hours. But I guess the idea is that you you take a drug, a psychedelic drug or whatever, and you can um, I don't know perceive reality differently or more honestly, or you're open to new experiences or you're not just limited to the programming that's that, that you've had for your entire life, that it actually allows you to think in a different way and, and, and supposedly discover um, a, a deeper reality. Is that what they're, is that what he's saying? I'm just trying to understand what would you get out of taking these drugs and then trying to come up with answers? Yeah, well, the research that started to come out, again, the scientific research uh, that started to come out over the last couple of years seems to suggest, because what they're doing now is they're, they're putting people on LSD and then studying their brains with fMRI uh, scanners, seeing what happens. They're, they're, what, what seems to be happening is parts of the brain that filter the data that we uh, uh, take in. Here, actually, I've got a quote. I just found it in my notes. This is from 2016 um, in Neuroscience News, talking Mm -hmm. about uh, neuroimaging of the visual cortex uh, when brains are on LSD. Um, Normally, our brain consists of independent networks that perform separate specialized functions, such as vision, movement, and hearing. 
as well as more complex things like attention. However, under LSD, the separateness of these networks breaks down, and instead you see a more integrated or unified brain. Our results suggest that this effect underlies the profound altered state of consciousness that people often describe during an LSD experience. It's also related to what people sometimes call ego dissolution, which means the normal Mm. sense of self is broken down and replaced by a sense of reconnection with themselves, others, and the natural world. This experience is sometimes framed in a religious or spiritual way and seems to be associated with improvements in well-being after the drug's effects have subsided. So it seems to be that the way our brains work normally when we're not on drugs, and if you um, have an integrated three illusions type philosophies, is you see yourself as being separate from everyone and everything else. Mm -hmm. When you take the drugs, that sense of separateness, the parts of the brain that cause that sense of separateness um, break down and or stop working and right. you actually perceive the underlying oneness of everything and this has a profound effect on people even after they stop taking it there's studies now saying it treats alcoholics i've got another study here um from nature.com from 2012 Mm. Um, the powerful hallucinogen LSD has potential as a treatment for alcoholism, according to a retrospective analysis of studies published in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, says that uh, 59% of people receiving LSD reported lower levels of alcohol misuse compared wow. to 38% of people who received a placebo. Um, this idea that the, 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 the spiritual experience that people had uh, on LSD removed their, their drinking um, even after they took the drug. People like Steve Jobs, uh, famously, he, sa- he used LSD when he was a young man. He said that, you know, that changed his view of the world. And in fact, he was once quoted as saying he, would, he doesn't trust anyone who'd never taken LSD because <laughs> their wow. perspective was all wrong. He said it in his autobiography that was written just before he died, not autobiography, the biography written about him just before he died, he said it was probably the most important thing that happened to him in his lifetime was was taking LSD uh, as a young man. Um, you know, the, the rest of his life, he could trace back to that one thing. Lots of people have, have reported those experiences. So anyway, my point is that Leary, for those of us who grew up well after the, the 60s and the 70s. What he, he was on a religious quest. He was talking about drugs as a religious experience, a spiritual experience to enable that. Um, and also, as he pointed out in that clip I played, once you, get, once you turn on your brain and you tune in to the religious experience, everything mm-hmm. else becomes secondary. The ah. ant hill, as he describes it, of the, the game of life, Right. All runs a distant second. Money, career, ambition, all that kind of stuff. You realize, well, that's all bullshit. None of that matters. Yeah. And that's what he, that's, and he was telling people to think for themselves and question authority. Yeah. And and again, this is a very important distinction. He's not saying grab a gun and and shoot 
cops and politicians. He's just saying, question everything. And, and they drop out part of that phrase, which, as you probably have read, it got misconstrued by people who didn't like him or who were arguing against him. But when he said drop out, yeah, he meant, you know, a discover your singularity, um, that you have choices, that you, that you can be an agent of change. And Leary later said, unhappily, my explanations of the sequence of personal development were often mis- misinterpreted to mean go get stoned and abandon all constructive activity. But like you just said, turn into yourself, discover what's there. And when you realize what's really in you, what, that you're a part of everything, all that other stuff that you were chasing before is just suddenly not, or not suddenly, but over time when you work on it, it's just not as important as it used to be because you've got a, I, I don't know if you want to call it a higher calling or just a better sense of what reality is. Yeah, a different um, perspective of mm-hmm. what's important and, gotcha. and what's real. Uh, now, of course, governments and corporations uh, who are built on driving uh, an ever-growing uh, economy aren't going to be happy about that kind of a message. Hey, you want mm. all this capitalist economy stuff is bullshit. Yeah. Um, they're not going to like that. So Leary obviously was an enemy of the establishment. Was it just Leary? Of course, there were others, even some that came before him. Aldous Huxley wrote his famous book, The Doors of Perception, first published in 1954. It had a big influence on the movement. He talked about using mescaline to mm. tap into the religious experience in that book. Um, mescaline, uh, one of the underlying properties of uh, peyote, I think, or is it the other way around? Um, it's associated with peyote in one way or another. I'm look it up here. Get my facts straight. Uh, mescaline is a naturally occurring psychedelic alkaloid, known for its hallucinogenic effects. Uh, naturally occurs in peyote, in the peyote mm. cactus, along with the San Pedro cactus, the Peruvian torch, and other members of the cactaceae <laughs> plant. Um, yeah, so. Um, it's, it's the property of peyote. And, of course, his book is where the Doors got their name. Now, speaking of the Doors, mm-hmm. rock and roll obviously played a large role in making drugs something that the mainstream thought about as well. The Beatles smoked weed. Do you know who gave the Beatles their first try of weed? Weed. Um was it their manager? I have no idea. Bob Dylan. Oh, God. Hey, try this. Yeah. If Bob Dylan hands you something, I guess you pretty much take it. Yeah, well, the story is um, the Beatles were in New York in 1964 doing some shows. They were at their hotel having some downtime, drinking, partying. Um, Bob Dylan came up with a couple of guys and they were drinking champagne. He said, oh, I don't like champagne. I only drink cheap wine. Um, and they said, oh, we'll send someone out to get you cheap. He goes, don't worry. How about we just smoke some weed? And they were like, what? <laughs> they, I think they tried it a little bit back in the cavern days, but it didn't do anything for them and they didn't really um, right. have a good experience with it. Um, so he was like, no, 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 I'll show you how to do it properly. So they, they got high, really fucking baked, according to <laughs> McCartney. Um, thanks to Bob Dylan, and it, it um, the hotel where they were staying was the Delmonico Hotel on Park Avenue near Central Park. Do you know what that hotel is called today? No, Trump Park Avenue. Oh God! Oh God! Another thing ruined. 
Uh-huh. So the Beatles first got high at uh, Trump Park Avenue. Um, and now one other the big thing that, that, that led to the rise of the hippie movement was the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, which is where the hippies were trying to build a community based on their ideas, counterculture, drugs, music, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now the word hippie comes from hipster, and that word was used to describe the beatniks who moved into places like Greenwich Village in New York and Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. Now, here's something I learned. Both the terms beatnik and hippie were invented by the same guy. Barry or Stan? He's a jerk. <laughs> Well, he was a guy who joined Barry and Stan uh, in the 50s. Uh, his name was Herb. Herb. Their new agency was Barry, Stan and Herb for a while. Herb Herb Kane, he uh, was a journalist for the San Francisco Chronicle, moonlighted with Barry and Stan. Um, right. And he came up with both words. So uh, good on you, Herb. Well, well done. Yeah. Good contribution. Beat was slang for being beaten down or or, or downtrodden, but to Mm -hmm. the beat authors and poets like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, they claimed it had a spiritual connotation as in beatitude. Uh, Is that that how you pronounce it in America, beatitude? Yeah, beatitude. Or do you pronounce it beatitudes? Beatitude. Mm, Beatitude, yeah. Kerouac uh, wrote On the Road um, and The Dharma Bum, books like that. They were very influential. I just started reading On the Road last night, um, enjoying it so far. You ever read it? You read Kerouac? Uh, I read a little bit back in college. I don't remember anything. Hmm. Heather's a big I read fan. Ginsburg's. Yeah. Oh, is she? Really? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I read Ginsburg's Howl a few years ago, uh, which was great. Really loved it. Terrific. Mm. Um, but I'd never read Kerouac, so I'm getting into that. Anyway, somewhere he wrote, The Beat Generation, that was a vision that we had. John Cleland Holmes and I and Alan Ginsberg and an even wild away in the late 40s of a generation of crazy, illuminated hipsters suddenly rising and roaming America, serious, bumming and hitchhiking everywhere, ragged, beatific, beautiful, in an ugly, graceful new way. A vision gleaned from the way we had heard the word beat spoken on street corners in Times Square and in the village, in other cities in the downtown city night of post-war America. Beat meaning down and out, but full of intense conviction. Nice. I like that. Now, Kane, the author, the, sorry, the journalist I mentioned before, Herb, he uh, just added the suffix nick, the Russian suffix nick to beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he came up with the word about six months after the launch of Sputnik. Ah. And he said, ah, oh, they're beatniks. Sputniks, nice. beatniks. Um, There's your trivia yeah. for the day. There, there you go. <laughs> I don't know what nick means in uh, no. Russian. Let's not push it. No. Any of our Russian listeners out there knows uh, what Nick... Oh, I just looked it up. There you go. Oh, I do know. Shut up. It, <laughs> it corresponds with the suffix E-R. Er. Beater. Uh, yeah. Sputter. 
No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, okay. So you'd have Raskolnik. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Cool. Refusnik. Don't think that's actually Russian. Um, Jews like it a lot too, apparently. Uh, Nudnik. Boring person. Mm. Um, mm, 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 mm. Okay, so Nick is somebody who does something. So Beat Nick is somebody who's part of the Beat generation. So the Beat philosophy was countercultural, um, anti-materialistic, stressed the importance of bettering one's inner self rather than chasing career or, or money, material possessions. There was a guy. There was guys like Alan Watts, who I'm sure most people have heard of. He introduced the beatniks to Zen Buddhism and Asian philosophies in general. Cool. He's got a resurge of of uh, influence these days. I often see videos of Alan Watts popping up on YouTube and that sort of stuff. Um, big fan of Alan Watts. I've always been. I remember reading him in my twenties. Um, you know, he was not only a Zen philosopher but also like to fuck and drink and do drugs and that kind of stuff you know um now the soundtrack for the beatniks was jazz and and as we know jazz musicians like their weed and their heroin so the beatniks also like their weed and their heroin they a lot of them like to the men like to dress like dizzy gillespie with horn rimmed glasses and a beret and a goatee and they adopted the jazz slang cool cat hip which is, of course, where the hippies came from, and they built on top of the beatniks, but was slightly different. So, was jazz music the gateway to heroin? Yeah, it's the gateway drug. Uh, jazz <laughs> music. Harry Anslinger was right. No, I'm just messing. Hmm. Now, the hippies, uh, I guess, took that and built their own thing on top of it. Merged into psychedelic music, the the sexual revolution, using drugs to to explore altered states of consciousness was still a big part of it. You know, when I think of the hippies, I often go back to guys like the novelist Ken Kesey, who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a group of like hangers-on followers, friends. They called themselves the Merry Pranksters. Um, he had a bunch of houses, I think, mostly in California, and and they would like just sort of live on his property and hang out. They'd throw parties that were known as the acid tests, where people would drop LSD and combine it with music and multimedia performances. Something oh that um, Andy Warhol sort of picked up and ran with famously in New York. The the house band at Andy Warhol's performances was the Velvet Underground. The house band at Ken Kesey's house parties was the Grateful Dead. Oh, my um, God. You couldn't get more anti-hippie than the Velvet Underground. They were they, The Velvet Underground were an extension, uh, though, of... Um, the beat generation it came out of Greenwich Village, but was a lot more, um, you know, hardcore about sort of drugs and hard drugs and, and sexual perversion and more arty than the hippies. They took, they took the artiness 
um, of of the beat generation and took it in one direction, and the hippies sort of went in a completely opposite direction. You know, I think Lou and the Velvets were sort of anti hippie by their very nature. They hated the hippies, mm. hated the Beatles, hated all of that kind of stuff. Wow. Um, now Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters would also travel in a famous psychedelic painted school bus called Further. They would travel around the country throwing parties, giving out LSD, <laughs> and it'll and, and contributed a lot to the rise of, of the hippie movement. Uh, do you know what happened to Ken Kesey? No, tell me. Uh, lived a relatively normal life. Died November 10th, 2001. Wow. Uh, at the age of 66 of liver cancer. Yeah, normal life. The man who pretty much single-handedly invented the hippie movement. Um, so Hate ashbury then in San Francisco became this sort of uh, enclave of hippies, sort of a big social experiment. They thought they were building something that would spread to the rest of the world. And it did in many ways, but probably not as they envisioned it. And we'll explore some of the reasons why. There was a famous shop there, Ron and Jay Thelen's psychedelic shop uh, on Hague Street, opened in 1966, where you could go and buy marijuana and LSD. Oh, my God. Um, not sure how they got away with that. Um, I think there was some special uh, loopholes in the law in San Francisco in the time where they got away with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was like the first head shop, um, as it was known, where you could go and buy special drugs that would, uh, get you high. Wow. I'm just trying to picture walking into a shop and buying LSD. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can buy it and buy weed in a lot of places in the U S now. Yeah. Right. Um, now, of course, the Beatles, you know, would sort of hint about taking drugs. They'd write songs like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Um, mm-hmm. Funny story about um, when they met uh, um, Bob Dylan and he gave them weed and they were like, oh, we've never used it before. And he's like, but you've got that song where you talk about it. <laughs> And they were like, what? What song? He goes, you know, the one where you go, I get high, I get high, I get high. And John Lennon had to say, no, no, it's I can't hide, not I get high. And Bob was like, oh, shit, dude. I hear, right. I hear what I want to hear. Yeah. Um, so they, they were hinting at it. Um, the Doors were doing a lot of stuff that was a bit trippy. Um, Lou Reed went, fuck that. He wrote a song called Heroin where he literally talked about shooting up heroin. Um, And uh, I I guess i got to play a little bit of that now.
I first heard that song um, yeah. probably in the late 80s. I think I was 17 when I first heard that. And I was mm. shocked even then that he was literally talking about <laughs> sticking a needle in his arm and injecting himself <laughs> with heroin. It's like, holy oh. shit, dude, that's fucking hardcore. <laughs> like, no one talks about that in rock music. And that was in the 80s. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about that. I mean, if you think about the baby boomers and, all, and those people of that gen, uh, generation, I mean, just... Think about all the social change that they saw in their lives. I mean, you've like you were saying earlier, you've got the Vietnam War, the the Korean War before that, you've got the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, assassination of JFK, his brother Martin Luther King, walking on the moon, civil rights, women's rights, oil embargo. I mean, how could you not want better or or begin to not trust your government or or think that things could be better or that maybe that we ourselves could be the agents of change and improvement when you're being disappointed by all the various governments around you. It doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. I mean, how could you not want to forget all that stuff, turn inward and try to improve yourself and the world around you and do it with your friends? I mean, I I just think they lived through an incredible time um, that was always intense, whether it was good or bad. It just seemed to have been always intense for these people. Yeah. I mean, it was a time of a lot of change in the world, and um, they were trying to change it and make it better. And Lou said, you know, fuck all that hinting about drugs. Let's just say, yep, we're shooting heroin. Deal with it. This is real life. Now, during the 1967 Summer of Love, psychedelic rock music started entering the mainstream, received a lot more commercial radio airplay. Mm -hmm. Then in 1970, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin all OD'd, which made drugs even cooler. People were like, yeah! Live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Oh, God. Let's do it. Now, some stats are interesting here. According to one piece of research, in 1967, only 5% of American college students had ever used marijuana. 67, okay. Two years later, by 69, that figure had jumped to 22%. Now, that's a big jump, um, yeah. so it shows us what was happening in that, that period in the US, but it's still a, a minority. It's still right. less than a quarter of college students had even tried marijuana. 
Now, amphetamines at the time, speed was still really relegated to a relatively small subculture, mm-hmm. bikers, maybe some hardcore um, users like um, the you know the, the velvets and people like that were using speed. Heroin was still mainly used by uh, jazz musicians, but a growing number of rock musicians were uh, starting to experiment with it. Wasn't really um, a hippie thing, though, I think, at this juncture. Mm-hmm. In 1967, uh, July 7th, 1967, Time magazine did a story called The Hippies, Philosophy of a Subculture. It's a cover story of Time. It uh, described what they called the hippie code. Do your own thing, whatever you have to do it. No, let me start that again. Do your own thing wherever you have to do it and whenever you want. Drop out. Leave society as you've known it. Leave it utterly. Blow the mind of every straight person you can reach. Turn them on. If not to drugs, then to beauty, love, honesty, fun. And what's wrong with beauty, honesty, love, and fun? Exactly. Yeah. Um, It's estimated that about 100,000 people traveled to San Francisco to be part of the hippie movement in 1967. Wow. Uh, in the August of that year, CBS did a news report called The Hippie Temptation, um, and it, along with other sort of media coverage, just drove uh, a national attention and international attention to the counterculture movement, the hippies. Then, of course, you had the Woodstock Festival in 1969 where it's estimated that half a million people turned up to hear Canned Heat, Joan Baez, Janis Joplin, The Grateful Dead, Credence, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Carlos Santana, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, Jefferson Airplane, and Jimi Hendrix. Let me let me ask real quick, since your musical knowledge, your hit the history of bands, you know, is, is greater than mine. I ran across across a couple of uh, psychedelic rock musicians that I'd never heard of before. I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, have you ever heard of the 13th Floor Elevators? No. Who are they? I, I don't know. Just one of the many bands up there with Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix. What about Ultimate Spinach? No, but that's an awesome name. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, the Chamber Brothers, Country Joe and the Fish. I'm like, I have no idea who these people are, but obviously they were taking drugs, experimenting with music and sexual freedom. And and, and like you were saying earlier, they made drugs, whatever drugs, cool. And so a lot more younger people are going to try them because they are now cool and what is the government going to do about that? Now that, that it's not that it's an explosion, but a lot more younger people are trying this stuff in college or just at college age people. But the kids weren't just getting high and listening to rock music. They were also mm-hmm. protesting against the Vietnam War for civil rights and women's rights, sexual liberation, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when um, people around the world, particularly Americans, were flipping the channel, they'd see race riots, then they'd see riots on some of the country's most prestigious college campuses, along with lines of helmeted police, clouds of tear gas, kids getting beaten down with nightsticks. Mm-hmm. 
it looked like the world was going crazy. It looked like America, the the, the beacon of freedom and uh, capitalism, was coming apart at the seams. And of course, a lot of people blamed it on drugs. Right. The uh, they thought drugs and the anti-war movement was turning perfectly nice kids into this group of violent, insubordinate, promiscuous dropouts who didn't wash and didn't cut their hair and <laughs> listened to offensively loud music, burning the flag, tearing up draft cards, praising bras. the enemy, yeah. burning their bras. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, here's the thing, though, but now, now that we can step step back and look back i mean the government's been lying to these people you've got the uh the u2 incident during uh eisenhower's administration you've got the 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 vietnam war that we when we spoke on the cold war with that gentleman i can't remember his name we were talking about it could have ended so much sooner but no one had the guts to look tough to say hey there's no way we can win this we're losing tons of men um let, let's let's get out of that and but again so not only is their government lying to them and getting caught in the process the pe- the young people are trying to like you said they're not just getting stoned and, and having sex. They're trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to make themselves a better place, but it's going to come across to the establishment and to their parents as rebellion. It's social upheaval. Uh, it's political dissent. And somebody, something has got to happen to put these kids back in their place. Not just the kids, but you've got the the, the darkies are also right. tearing up, tear, tearing down one side of society. You've got yeah. the kids tearing down the other. Darkies and white kids causing all the problems. Then you've got Vietnam veterans coming back addicted to heroin. Oh, shit. Having had access while they were over there to some of the purest and cheapest heroin in right. the world. Jeez. They're coming back. They've got drug addictions and they're suffering from PTSD and depression because of what they've seen and what they've done. Mm-hmm. But, you know, no one understood that at the time. No one understood PTSD. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's coming at America from all sides. And then, as you said, within a few short years, JFK, RFK, MLK, all the Ks are assassinated. <laughs> if your surname started with a K, you screwed. You know, you were, you were, you were, you know, you were screwed. You were looking yeah. behind you at all times. Right. Then Altamont happened. Um, big rock concert where uh, the 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 um, Hell's Angels were providing security. Who thought that was a good idea? And uh, a girl got killed. Jeez. Charles Manson happened, the yeah. Manson gang, which is the subject of Quentin Tarantino's new film. Can't wait for that. Wow. Somewhere in there, the Johnson administration did something good, though. They passed the Narcotics Addict Rehabilitation Act of 1966. Well, that sounds good, but it depends on what's on the it inside was- of it. No, it was good. Um, the act specified that narcotic addiction was a mental illness. Wow. And had to be treated as a disease, like people were starting to think of alcoholism as a disease in the 60s. Right. They said, well, it also should be a tri- applied to drug addiction. Well, and they, you- they started to talk about setting up rehabilitation centers for narcotics addicts. 
So, Eureka, maybe we can consider this not a crime and get these people the help that they need. I'm assuming that's not what happened. Well, they start to in a small way, but drug use is still considered a crime and they didn't get a lot of funding organised for treatment. So uh, drug use is exploding and drug treatment, you know, the funding for it is still small. But there were some small experiments and there were some good results from that that started to pay off, but it pretty much got ignored, um, as we'll see in uh, subsequent episodes. Well, just for a second, there was a glimmer, a glimmer of hope. Yeah, there were some people who were trying to do some intelligent, some, make some intelligent responses to to the use of drugs. Um, even though I disagree that it's necessarily um, a mental illness, all drug use. But uh, anyway, at least they were trying to treat drug addiction as a, as a medical problem. Right. Um, now, in the late 60s, the baby boomers were in their 20s. And whenever you have more young men in a society, you tend to have an uptick in crime, particularly mm-hmm. when you've got a lot of poverty, uh, when there's a lot of people living in segregated communities where they're treated as substandard humans, um, where you send them off to fight wars and then unfortunately some of them come back with PTSD and, and uh, drug habits. Um, the civil rights movement, of course, was also scaring Whitey, as I said earlier, um, as did the kids with their long hair and their rock and roll and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And all of this fear gave Richard Nixon the opportunity that he had long been waiting for since he was defeated by Kennedy in the 59 uh, election. Uh, he 59-60. When was the election? 59 or 60? 59, right? Sounds right. I Kennedy got sworn in and... Beginning of 60, I think. Um, He has another shot, and he's going to use all of this fear for the darkies and the hippies and the the rioting um, in his campaign. And it's in Nixon's administration that we really see the war on drugs ramp up to uh, the level that we've known for the last... 40, 50 years. Nixon took a page out of Anslinger's book. In a big way, in a big way. But that's where I wanted to leave today's episode, unless you've got uh, something else you wanted to throw in before we close up, Ray Bear. No, I just imagine that the people who fought in World War II by 1965 or whatever, they're, they're obviously staring at retirement in the age, and they're like, I fought on the beaches of Normandy for this. They must have been freaking the fuck out. So when Nixon comes along, yeah, they're gonna, he's going to get their votes. All right. And with that, we will be back next time with Richard Nixon, his war on drugs, and the number one agent for Nixon's war on drugs, the king, Elvis <laughs> Presley. But I'm going to go out this time with Jefferson Airplane. you
Oh, who? 